Today we will be speaking about archaeology and the Bible. Our guest is Dr. Leonard Greenspoon, a graduate of Harvard University. He is currently the Klutznik Chair in Jewish Civilization and a professor at Creighton University at Jesuit College in Omaha, Nebraska. He's editor-in-chief of the Studies in Jewish Civilization series for the Biblical Archaeology Society, and he has co-authored uh, with late Harvey Minkoff the um, Biblical Archaeology Society's Free Guide to Modern Bible Translations, called The Holy Bible, A Buyer's Guide. We will be discussing the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, or as it's known in Christian circles as the Old Testament, and the field of archaeology in relation to the Bible. So, there's a complex relationship between archaeology and the Bible. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you got involved with the Biblical Archaeology Society? Yes. Um, a number of years ago, now I'm thinking 30 or maybe even more, um, a, a man who was uh, essentially unknown in the academic world named Herschel Shanks, who was a lawyer, uh, decided that he was going to uh, start a publication that would take the um, discoveries and the findings and the theories of established archaeologists and, and put them in a format that uh, would be accessible to the general public. And that's the origins of the uh, Biblical Archaeology Review. Uh, it was, uh, I can remember very well, um, sitting down with the, I guess we would say, the establishment archaeologists of those days. And they were saying, no, this is a horrible idea. This is not going to work out. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And, uh, you know, basically saying, you know, we'll, we'll continue to support the uh, journals and publications in archaeology that have been around for decades, if not centuries. Uh, but this idea of popularizing it, uh, the relationship between archaeology and the Bible is a very bad idea. Um, it turns out that um, no matter what you or I pretty much anybody else thinks about uh, Herschel's idea. Um, it's been an ongoing enterprise now, I guess, for, for four decades, as the Biblical Archaeology Society, uh, which sponsors the Biblical Archaeology Review. For a number of years, uh, they sponsored another journal, the uh, Bible Review, uh, then eventually that was folded into the Biblical uh, Archaeology Review. And um, I've always been um, interested in translating, but not just translating from Hebrew to Greek or from Hebrew to Latin or what have you, from one language to another, but also translating um, specialist language into the language of that could be understood by a broader general public. So every discipline or every uh, job has jargon or specialized language. Uh, it, it's what allows people who are physicists or, and people who are uh, creative artists or whatever it is, it allows them to talk with each other without having to start it you know, at level one every time. We've got our language, they're shortcuts, and uh, that's exactly what's true in biblical studies and archaeology. 
but almost by definition, that's inner, inner group, specialist language. And to the extent that we think that biblical studies and especially uh, archaeological finds that could relate to biblical studies are important to a larger audience, then someone has to take the technical reports and the specialist language. And, and again, I would use the term translate it, uh, not dummy down, as some people think, um, not um, smooth it out to the point that it's sort of homogenous, but put it into language that educated general public can understand. And so that's all, that's something I've always been, that's something I've always been interested in. And, um, and, and in an, I guess in an ideal world, every um, biblical scholar and every biblical archeologist and every biblical textual critic could do that on her or his own. You know, they do their technical work and then they write, uh, write it up for the um, for a more popular general audience, but that isn't the case. And I'm not saying that it's uh, it's necessarily a, a fault. My uh, uh, professor at Harvard, Frank Moore Cross, one of the most distinguished biblical scholars of his generation, was not able to do that. Um, did that make him less of a scholar? I, I don't think so. He never aspired to do that, and he, he didn't do it. Um, other individuals uh, are able to do that. When the scholar, uh, him or herself, isn't able to do that, uh, then we have sort of two choices. Uh, you can have the work read by uh, someone in journalism or someone sort of a, a generalist um, and have them write it up because they've got the style ability, but generally don't have the academic background, or you can have somebody in the academic world who is willing to undertake, you know, that task of um, um, taking the language of the specialist and making it available to the, uh, to the general interested public. And so that's part of what I've done, and that's why I was so intrigued uh, when the uh, Biblical Archaeology uh, Society uh, was first established. So in the same line with uh, translating um, the relevance or the relevant ideas to the the public, can you uh, share with us why the Bible is important in our modern day and what is the relevance of uh, learning about it from archaeological or academic perspective? Since a lot of religious groups would say that if it's not inspired, if it's not uh, being expounded by one of their leaders um there's something missing or they have like a um some type of uh fear of the scientific study of of the text because it might bring doubt to their faith so um what is the the way to communicate uh the relevance of the bible uh to those audiences and let me just say um before starting to answer that question, that is a really perceptive question, and it gets to the heart of a lot of um, of matters that uh, that concern me. So let me just give you uh, 
an ex- a general kind of example of exactly uh, of what you're speaking. And um, so I'm Jewish and uh, and involved in uh, my synagogue here, but in Jewish activities nationally and internationally beyond academic activities. And um, for the most part, what uh, I would I want to say professional, accredited, recognized uh, Jewish scholars, those who will attend meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature or the Association of Jewish Studies, what they do does not have or has only negligible impact on what is uh, what rabbis give sermons on, what they teach, what goes on in the in, in the synagogue, and uh, it strikes me that um, this is and this is not a, a new issue, and it's not a only Jewish issue, but it strikes me that it's uh, impoverishing at at both levels. Okay, so um, granted that there are some religious denominations, some denominations within um, Judaism, if you want to use the term denominations in Judaism or certain movements within Judaism and within Christianity, uh, for whom studying anything but the traditional texts is not only a waste of time, but is actually dangerous. Um, And for those individuals, I don't know that um, there's there's much that will ever be done to um, sort of crack that barrier. Um, it, it is it is uh, it's intense. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a high and dense wall. Um, then um, for some of these same groups. Uh, it is considered to be appropriate to um, cherry pick, to go through some of the scientific or historical critical approaches and pull out something which, in their view, supports the quote-unquote truth uh, of the Bible. Um, so, for example, um, if if an if a uh, if if an archaeological find coincides with a, a, a biblical account, then you say, okay, that we can use. Um, whether uh, no, actually, I don't just say whether. I can say, in fact, when that's done, uh, there's no effort made by the uh, conservative religious interpreters in in this case. To look at the context of the archaeological evidence, or if necessary, to look one word before or one word after. Uh, this is this is not acceptable research. Uh, you, you can't pick and choose, and then say, I, you know, I've um, I've established on the basis of extensive research X or Y, but they're not really interested in that. Um, but there's a there's a huge number of people in uh and obviously the number's different depending on uh if we're talking about Protestants, Roman Catholics or Jews. There's a huge number of people 
uh, who are interested in uh, reading the biblical text, excuse me, with as many possible, um, from as many possible perspectives as they can, um, as, as they can um, become acquainted with. Uh, now there's a, there's a sense in which um, a, a conservative religious in, individual, I mean, not, not uh, a literalist, not a fundamentalist, but someone who is, as a, a general sense, let us say that the, that the writers of the biblical text were inspired, uh, that the biblical text is what I would call qualitatively different than any other literature, which is to say it's not better or worse because it's, it's in its own category. Okay, there, there are a number of, of those people who um, are open to uh, the approaches taken by uh, historical critical scholars. Uh, some of them will be turned off because um, a number of historical critical scholars are disdainful of the biblical text. Um, and that's not a view which I think is very helpful. Um, their goal is uh, to cast doubt on the biblical text, uh, verse by I mean, let's say book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. And uh, <laughs> someone who starts off with a uh, respectful, a, a premise of, res of respecting the Bible uh, is going to find it difficult to uh, interact with views that they understand are overtly or covertly trying to prove or disprove the biblical text. Uh, consequently, um the in a in a very brief exposition i guess i could say a very brief sentence the uh in my view uh biblical scholars could learn something about the power of faith whether they have that faith or not and uh vast numbers of jews and christians uh, can understand that archaeology, um, along with a number of other approaches which make use of the uh, social sciences, for example, um, that their goal need not be to quote-unquote disprove or quote-unquote destroy or quote-unquote cause doubt. Um, and, um, and in fact, um, just to backtrack, excuse me, just a second, um, uh, doubt, <coughs> although it's um, definitely uh, not considered a virtue, if you will, again, by hard right-wing fundamentalists, <coughs> in fact, at the heart of, of faith. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a complex, it's really a complex issue, and then if you want to simply... I'm sorry. If, if you if you just if you want to simply move it out of the range of the individual, um, uh, the 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 biblical text, in one way or another, is still a powerful factor 
in uh, in Western uh, societies, and to the extent Western societies still have power throughout the world, certain, which certainly is true historically, it's a it, it's been a powerful um, uh, has a powerful effect on on history. Um, so that uh, if you simply uh, wish to look at it in terms of uh, where have these ideas come from, uh, um, what's the um, what's where does the stance come from, uh, where do these policies come from, uh, then a, an, an understanding of the biblical text is is necessary. Uh, it's no longer um, so longer a a I guess we say that that as late as I would guess shortly after World War II, there was at least one copy of the Bible in every home. I'm pretty well. I would be I would be surprised if uh, if if that was a Bible in as many as a quarter of homes in America, and where where it does exist, whether it's actually you know has the same preeminence. That it once did, um, but we're we're dealing with very powerful material, no matter what its origins are, uh, just as an historical fact. And um, seeking to understand it in as many ways as possible uh, strikes me as essentially universally uh, a universally positive. Um, development. You wrote an article called Overcoming Religious Illiteracy, uh, not as simple as A, B, or C. Uh, do you think that the reason some people dismiss the Bible as just a bunch of stories is because they are not aware of the depth or beauty of the text? And also, do you think it's because the texts are so complicated that people are a little disconnected from um, where the ideas come from, and it's hard for them to decipher the meaning of the Bible. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't want to repeat myself, but that's that's a very that's a very good question, and uh, started from my observation that uh, biblical literacy tests, as conducted uh, in the United States by the Gallup poll system and by the uh, the the um, Pew Endowment and others are typically a series of multiple choice questions. Um, what is the first book of the Bible? And you have presumably three choices: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So as you you check Genesis, and now you you, you know that puts you one step on the way to biblical literacy. Um, he killed his brother. Um, and you have, I don't know, uh, Cain and Abel, uh, David and Solomon, you know, and then you say, oh, that's Cain and Abel. Now, now you've moved along. And, and my uh, contention is that uh, amassing, this is, this is really biblical trivia, uh, amassing a um, considerable amount of biblical trivia is not, what biblical literacy is all about. Um, memorizing, uh, for example, uh, the books of the Bible. Let's say, let's take the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible and the Protestant Old Testament 
have the same books, but in a different order. So if you're going to, even if you're going to say, I'm going to know all the books of the Bible in heart, by heart, and then you add the Roman Catholic, which is very similar to the Greek Orthodox, you've got lots of different orders of the books of the Bible. But what's the point of that? Are you now a, a biblically literate person? Um, and uh, the answer I would say is no. Uh, I never set out to learn the order of the books of the Bible in any tradition. What happened was that as I did more and more work on the Bible, the order of the books was something that just sort of organically developed as part of my work. And um, and by the way, uh, as an analogy, um, I may have mentioned in that article, I talked to some American historians and said, you know, uh, at what point do you or did you uh, learn the order of the presidents? And they said, we never learned that order of the presidents. Sometimes some eminent American historians still don't know the order of the presidents. But if they do, they didn't set out to learn it as if it were a, um, uh, uh, an important fact in and of itself. They learned it because it was part of their work. Uh, so some people, I believe, are, are uh, turned off because what's held to be the Bible is a, is a bunch of, 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 of facts, or, or, well, a bunch of items which could be understood factually, and the, the person who seems to be the, the, the Bible know-it-all is the one who knows more of these facts, who knows more passages by heart, and um, it's um, it's daunting, and it's it's it, it's somewhat intimidating. Uh, oh, you know, you, I talked to you about this, and then you can reel off all of these this piece of information as if these pieces of information defined what it is to uh, be biblically literate. Uh, I, I think is a real turnoff, and I I. Um, I hold that um, uh, biblical literacy is a result of reading the Bible. And, uh, and here, I mean reading the Bible, in a, uh, reading a naked Bible. So I have to say, what do I mean? If, you, um, if you're a traditional Jew, your reading of the Bible is uh, on a page of Talmud where the biblical text might be three lines, and then there's hundreds of other lines of commentary. Commentary is valuable. I don't think that anybody, you know, who's studying the Bible uh, at, at a certain level of seriousness in certain um, context, we want to look at the commentary, but this is really daunting as well. I mean, oh, is is he three lines, but I, somehow or another, I'm not going to understand it unless I also read these 3,000 uh, lines of um, commentary, and I think that's totally backwards. Uh, that uh, engagement with the biblical text, and when I say naked, without commentary, uh, for almost every Christian and for large numbers of Jews, that's going to be in translation, and there are lots of different translations, uh, almost all of which have some positive function. They all don't function the same. Okay, so if so if you're already starting, you know, you know, to you want to familiarize yourself with the Bible, and the the, the first thing you you um, hear about is, oh yeah, you, you really should be biblical, biblically literate, and you look at that, and that's just a bunch of uh, facts, and uh, it's really a bunch of trivia, and is that what you want to spend your time on? It doesn't seem very 
Um, it doesn't seem very useful. It doesn't seem so. This is, yeah. And then, oh, okay. So I'm I'm going to read it. But oh, look, I've got this translation, and it's got whether it's a Jewish translation or many Protestant or Catholic translations. I've got this translation, but it's got all these comments and notes, and man, it doesn't mean I have to have to read all of that as well. Uh, and I would say your first interaction should be with the text itself. It doesn't mean, as a result of all of this, it doesn't mean that it is um, easy, I get, it, it, or, or well, that it's simple, but it means that um, you, as an individual, this is something I'm very, um, very strong about, that, that you as an individual are ready without a huge amount of um, prior education or um, preparation to interact with the biblical text. And then I, uh, you know, I have to, the word interact is really important because um, much of the biblical text, as I understand it, no, no matter how it was written, no matter how it came to be, is done, it, it's, it's written and it's presented in such a way that it, I, I don't know if I want to say demands, but certainly strongly suggests to the reader that uh, their issues and their questions and uh, a discussion begins. I know my, my students uh, have a lot of trouble, maybe a lot of people have a lot of trouble with the idea that you would carry on a discussion with a, a text from 3,000 years, or even a text from yesterday, because it's just a bunch of words. But the biblical text in particular, um, uh, it seems to me when, when you, you read it, um, it, it, ask, it asks questions and it asks you to consider possible answers. And um, it, sometimes this happens because some information, all the information that you might well want as a modern reader or even an ancient post-biblical reader is not there. And sometimes it arises because um, <clears throat> the text is not uh, always 100% consistent within itself. And, and sometimes it arises because um, uh, issues are not resolved and, and, and wrapped up in a nice little bow, but in fact, there's a tension within the biblical text between this view and that view. And uh, it, if you wanted to speak to you, then you're going to have to work through these, these contentions. Uh, the idea that, okay, so actually, um, just looking at Bible translation, uh, the, 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 there's this is in a you know just very broadly speaking there's basically two ideas and one of them is with the more uh, literal translations that after all no matter how it came about no matter what year it came about no matter who was responsible inspired or not the bible old and new testament hebrew bible and new testament are ancient documents they come from a period chronologically quite distant from ours uh, in a society where the culture and the beliefs and many of the practices is quite different from ours. It is a foreign text, and consequently, when we read it, we need to recognize 
these elements of foreignness. And that takes, that's, that's not a, by any means a, uh, uh, insurmountable task, but it, it is something which, um, characterizes the more, uh, formal translations, which emphasize the foreignness of the text to, to us. And another view, um, the, uh, the proper way to understand the, the biblical text is to bring it up to date so that uh, to the extent possible, the language, the context, the concepts, and what have you, uh, appear modern. Um, there's a, a strong theological element here, uh, I think more so than in the, the other approach. And this theological element holds that this is the eternal word of God. And the eternal word of God, you shouldn't need a master's degree to get at it. It should be immediately apprehendable by you. And consequently, this is an updating of the text, more more literal text. Um, when I was younger, I used to think that uh, only the more literal text had value. But there are values for a freer text as well. But the short answer to your question is, is that um, reading the biblical text need not be a uh, an overwhelming task. Uh, it there are many many responsible ways for you as a reader not familiar with the ancient languages to have an immediate you know interaction with the text and then to work out through archaeology, through comparative Semitics, uh, through sociology, feminism, whatever it is, to, to, to work out uh, a, a variety of issues. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that you know, um, reading the biblical text uh, is um, need be, like I say, the, the um, uh, incredible, uh, incredibly difficult task uh, uh, task and toil that is sometimes pictured as. We spoke about this during uh, the class that I took with you. Um, and I asked this question, um, you know, I share my answer during class, but I want to hear your perspective. Um, should we look at the Bible as a shared tradition among different religions or as the literary heritage of ancient Israel? Whoa. Um... I don't know if you remember, I, I, I said that it should be called the Jewish scriptures because Amy Levine was saying that it was, um, whatever the scriptures that if you say the Hebrew scriptures, that's evident because they're in Hebrew, and then that they want to call it uh, the Hebrew Bible because they don't want to offend Jews, but then Christians feel left out because it's not the Old Testament anymore. So when it's all said and done, who who can claim it, or can everybody claim it for themselves? Um, well, if we had the choice between um, either or now I'm going to go with both and um, if the question um, this is uh, in common with the other questions you've asked um, I think, think they're really remarkable questions so here in, in a sense the, there's, a, there's a number of ways of looking at it so if I, if I said to you okay here's the contents of the Hebrew Bible 
And here's the contest of the part of the contents of the Protestant Old Testament. They're the same. Um, the order's different. Uh, the ordering makes some difference. Here's the Roman Catholic slash Greek Orthodox Bible. It's longer than the Protestant Old Testament, and it's longer than the Hebrew Bible. Everything that's in the additional material that that we use the, the uh, term apocrypha for, all of that is Jewish. All of that's pre-Christian, and um, all of it was presumably produced within the context of one or more Jewish communities for whom this was in some ways sacred. Um, how and why it's not part of the Hebrew Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, as a historical fact, uh, we don't know, and I don't, I'm not sure we'll ever know. Um, but having, having said that, um, let's look just one minute at the, um, the Protestant Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Same contents, somewhat different order. Uh, although the same, I mean, it, it, and the answer is uh, certainly not. And um, one answer, or one small part of the answer, is uh, the ordering, um, so that um, the Protestant Old Testament uh, ends with the uh, the Book of Malachi. Uh, which um, envisions a figure like Elijah coming as the um, – to to open up the Messianic age and bring on the Messiah. You go right to the Gospel of Matthew, and there is John acting as if he were Elijah bringing on the Messiah. I mean, these are – it's a connective thread, and and the text moves in a a different way. Um, That's – that's important, but for the most part, people don't read the Bible as a unified whole, but just read section and section. Okay, so then we're down, let's say we're, we're talking about a particular passage or a particular book, a particular concept. And uh, what is the case is that um, even for the large, even for most people who say they are reading the Bible in a secular context, in some sense, they are aware of, even if they don't participate in a reading tradition, but as a tradition of how the Bible is read among Protestants, as a, which is not nearly, of course, as long as as a tradition of how the Bible is read among Jews. Okay, so um, at at its simplest level, the Hebrew Bible is the Bible for Jews. The Old Testament is part of the Bible for Protestants. This makes an enormous difference. Um, and uh, it makes a difference at the, at the macro level, if you will, and it makes a difference at the micro level. It makes a difference in the, the way in which the books are structured, as I mentioned before, but it also makes a difference in the ways in which um, passages can be understood. And in fact, what what is a um, what is an acceptable or permissible explanation within Judaism or uh, within authentic Judaism? Um, a reference 
or, or taking a passage as uh, a messianic reference. That's nothing. There's nothing startling about that. It's not unusual. Uh, there's obviously debates in the Jewish tradition over whether this passage is referring to a Messiah and what kind of Messiah, or that passage is. Uh, taking a passage from the Hebrew Bible and applying it to Jesus as Messiah is, in my view, an inauthentically, antithetical and inauthentic to Judaism. Um, and to the extent that the Hebrew Bible is itself a a complete Bible, and to the extent that it has been the or a foundational document uh, for 2,500 years of uh, Jewish existence, and to the extent, on the other side, that the Protestant Bible uh, has been in existence 500 years uh, and has been read in a variety of ways, such as, however, to support um, not just the Messiahship and divinity of Jesus, but any number of other distinctive Protestant practices, they're not the same. Um, Now, it was very interesting um, because I was not familiar with this, and I suspect that my lack of familiarity with what I'm going to talk about right now it's pretty widespread. Um, the Catholic Church, uh, in a document of uh, just about 20 years old, it's a dense document and apparently has not been widely promulgated within, you know, down to the diocese level within the Catholic Church. But basically, it holds that a passage which was understood by early Christians. And here we won't get into the debate over, you know, whether somebody in the second, the first century was, should be called Christian, but a, a, a passage which was held by those who believed, early believers that Jesus was the Messiah, um, needs to be understood by Catholics. This is, this is the new part. Primarily within the context of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. So if you want to say, and this is, this is a, a, a new understanding uh, within the Catholic Church, which has not been, as far as I can tell, widely um, publicized. But for example, to take the classic example, if in, uh, in, in Isaiah 7, you want to say, uh, you understand uh, um, the young woman slash virgin uh, as Mary and the, the birth of the child is Jesus, um, obviously the, I mean, uh, yeah, pretty obviously the Catholic church is not going to say that's wrong, but they're going to insist according to this, uh, new focus that Catholics understand that the primary and first and completely authentic understanding of this as a reference to Isaiah's own time is that's valid. That's perfectly valid, and therefore it um, uh, supports and confirms the Jewish view. Now, it doesn't stop there, obviously. So even here, I think this is a real breakthrough. Even here, where we've gotten much closer to a Christian reading of the Old Testament, 
that is compatible with a Jewish reading of the Hebrew Bible. Even here, they're, they're not identical. Uh, but it, it is, again, I say it's, it, I would call it remarkable uh, that the typological reading, that is the reading of, for example, uh, Joshua in the Old Testament as a type of Jesus. He's, what he does predicts what Jesus will do. Um, that reading has not been abolished by the Catholic Church, but it's, it's, it's as if that reading only exists if you also understand Joshua within the Hebrew Bible. So again, I have a feeling my my answers can be uh, can be somewhat long-winded, but the the questions are good and they don't have, in my view, yes or no answers. So um, the the biblical text, and here if we just talk specifically about the text of the Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament, um, has um, it, it's the particular um, it's it's the it's a particular inheritance, if you will, of groups, specific groups, and it's the universal heritage of uh, of or inheritance of all of those who accept. Uh, the Bible as in some way uh, special, um, and there's overlap and there are differences. Well, that's a great answer because um, what you're really talking about is being intellectually honest about the context of the text. So that leads to the next question. In the past couple of centuries, there's been important archaeological finds. However, instead of making things more clear about the Bible, more disputes have arisen among archaeologists of ancient Israel. What would you say to people who would criticize the work of biblical archaeologists? You already mentioned it uh, in your intro, but um, this whole thing about early uh, archaeologists trying to prove the Bible, um, where are we at that? Like, um, Is even the term biblical archaeology um, an appropriate term? Because during um, biblical archaeology class I took, they were saying that uh, some snuff at that term, saying that it's not really the archaeology of the Bible, it's the archaeology of the Levant, of uh, Eastern, um, Near Eastern area. So are, are we getting more clarity about the Bible from these digs, or is it more confusing and even more disputed than it was before? Oh, another, another excellent question. The term which... Um, um, became popular and I think became almost the only term used for a certain period of time was Syro-Palestinian archaeology. You know, that's the archaeology of the Levant, the archaeology of the Eastern Mediterranean area. Um, and so I guess as just as you were posing the question, you know, what's in a name and does it matter? And um, so, in a what I would consider to be the easy answer, and I admit that saying it's the easy answer in this case is different from saying it's not profound. Um, but the easy, what, what I find as a, it's an easy answer, but also, like I say, um, it's not um, uh, um, uh, superficial, would be this. Um, what is 
if you want to say, I want to prove the Bible is true, or I want to prove it's not true. So what is the essential truth of the Bible? Uh, I, I don't see how uh, you can seriously take the Bible seriously with seriously without acknowledging that the central truth of the Bible is the existence of God and the interaction of God uh, with humans, the, the entry of God into human history. Uh, and that in and of itself uh, is not something that that archaeology um, can deal with. Okay, so I mean, this again is sort of like a, a platitude, but I think it's true. Um, today, an historian who writes um, God um, um, opened up George Bush's heart and told him to invade to invade uh, Iraq uh, is not going to be recognized. A writer who does that is is not going to be very widely accepted as a historian. That that's just n not what history is today. If, on the other hand, an historian, a writer poses it this way: uh, George Bush believed that God instructed him or ordered him to uh, invade Iraq, and he acted on that belief. Okay, that's, that, that's something which historians can deal with. Um, not did God do this, but did George Bush believe this? And then that's a matter of, I mean, you can have historical documentation, you can have psychological analyze, but there are lots of ways of doing it. Um, within the world of of biblical history writing, and I, I get a little bit annoyed by people who say, well, the biblical writers didn't write history the way we understand it, but no, who said they were? There was never any claim by a biblical writer. I mean, it, it doesn't even make any sense to say a biblical writer claimed to be writing history the way we do, because it, it's nonsense to, to even suggest that. Uh, to say that biblical writers weren't writing history is also nonsense, because it defines history in, in our way. So, if we ask the question this way, or sort of look at it this way. Those people responsible for providing uh, narratives within the Hebrew Bible, such as predominate in the former prophets, uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, where um, events are described in, uh, in order, and the causation, you know, what caused this to happen, victory, defeat, whatever, was understood to be God. You were the people were loyal to God. They succeeded. The people turned away from God. They were defeated. And that's that's one way of looking at. It. We usually call that the Deuteronomistic way of looking at it. That's what that's the truth of the biblical text. And archaeology is um, not equipped to deal with that. Uh, what is so then? Archaeology is equipped to um, um, uncover and uh, analyze and um, interpret uh, a vast amount of data. Um, it's, uh, I mean, we're fortunate that uh, uh, the age in which 
uh, people basically went to the archaeological digs and, you know, their only goal was to find some gold, silver, jewels, or what have you, uh, and either take them back for the glory of God of, of their country and God and their country or to sell it on the market um, without any interest in the uh, possible historical significance of that. That, that, that was a while back. I, mean, I can't say, I mean, it's a long time ago because it goes back uh, primarily to the pre-World War I period or just a period after World War I. Um, and, and we don't do that anymore. Let's, 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 not, let's be honest about it. I mean, archaeologists don't do that. Looters do that. Okay. Um, so what is the archaeologist uh, uncovering? Uh, that's, I mean, that's a question uh, in, the, in, uh, in the area of Syria, Palestine, uh, Judea, Galilee, Primarily, uh, there were fortifications uh, and uh, the same spot because it was uh, uh, close to a river or sort of a natural meeting point of, of, of roads uh, would be um, inhabited, then re-inhabited and re-inhabited and re-inhabited. And so the artificial mounds that we call tells were developed and they're excavated and um, a, a, a mass of, of material may be found. Uh, up until I'm guessing something like 30 years ago or so, uh, well, maybe a little bit earlier than that, almost all archaeologists were men, and many of them uh, came from the dominant elites of their own culture, uh, British, French, German, Italian, American, and they really loved to find all the all the finds of the elites, because after all, well, first of all, the palaces would typically be huge and easier to find than where, you know, the uh, tenements where people lived or what have you. And they, they were, you know, sort of happy to find um, how their predecessors lived. Uh, and now, of course, our archaeology is, is much more uh, in terms of the context, you know, not just not just even the, the particular city-state or the particular city, but the entire area that surrounds it, not just the elites. But um, and I can remember um, when I finished undergraduate school, which was in the 60s, and I was fortunate enough, I was uh, majored in classics. I was fortunate enough to get a Fulbright to study right after undergraduate school. And my project was to go to Rome and look at um, uh, the literary remains dealing with children, and then the, um, the remains that were found on frescoes and other um, items that archaeologists had uncovered. And at that time, I, mean, I, was, I, I can hardly think of myself as a, like a pioneer, but a pioneer, but that time nobody was doing that. Who cares? Children, come on. But, you know, we've expanded out from there. Uh, all right, so um, it's, it's legitimate as far as I'm concerned to say that – just so far, what I've said, the ultimate truth of the Bible is, is not susceptible to uh, – the ultimate truth of the Bible is not susceptible to truth or disproof by archaeological finds. Then, um, capital archaeological, strat, uh, stratigraphic uh, uh, archaeological um, uh, digs of the type we have today can amass an enormous amount of information about uh, the lives not only of the kings and the elites, but of the general populace. Uh, uh, you know, for example, 
uh, it is, as I understand, it's still generally conceded that uh, a um, a site that uh, was um, inhabited by Jews, Judeans, Israelites, uh, was uh, pig-free. Uh, you know, they, the, the prohibition against eating pork apparently is very, very old. Okay. But whether that's been somewhat changed or not, uh, there's been more fines along those lines. That I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, I would say, I can't say with certainty. Um, but then we get to some, we get to another matter. So let's take uh, Jericho. Why not? Um, so uh, the text in the book of Joshua describes uh, the, the, the taking of Jericho as uh, essentially a, a matter of, of a ritual whereby the priests um, uh, march around along with the uh, Ark of the Covenant and, and some soldiers. They march around the uh, walls of the city for six days. Then on the seventh day, the walls fall. Uh, the Israelites then do go in and wipe out the population, but the, um, the walls, which were the major fortification for a city like Jericho, uh, fell um, miraculously. All right. Now, somebody else would say, no, no, that's not what happened. Uh, what happened is that there was an earthquake, and it's just sort of, you know, just the way it happened. It was the right time. And in fact, that area of the um, along the along the Jordan River is is earthquake prone. There are lots of historical examples. Uh, it was just just happened, or somebody else said, "Oh, God caused it to happen." And archaeologists have gone in and found that, um, of course, there's a debate over whether the Exodus and then the um, uh, conquest, if it was a conquest of the land, took place in the 1400s, the 1300s, the 1200s. <coughs> but uh, it's as far as I can tell, incontrovertibly accepted that there were no major city walls in Jericho during any of that time period. So what does that mean? Some people say, well, you know, Jericho was a, a small community um, and uh, it was taken by the Israelites. It's, it's the, when you cross the Jordan River, that's what you see first. And, and, yeah, they had to conquer it. And, but, you know, it was the first conquest, and then it was, they glorified it because, you know, you don't want to make the first conquest look like, you know, just love a mopping up operation. Um, and uh, it, on and on it goes back and forth. And, and um, for the most part, I think it's safe to say that um, – the results of archaeology mean that it is um, not um, uh, responsible to take the account on Joshua 6 of the conquest of the city literally. Um, that, just, that just wasn't that kind of a... Uh, City, if you will, there wasn't that kind of a, uh, of a of a collection of people right there with that kind of um, walls and what have you at, at that particular time. No matter what that particular time was, um, over two two or three centuries. Of course, that raises another question. That is, uh, which I think is 
absolutely necessary, and that is, do we think that the story of, of, of Jericho was ever intended to be taken literally? That's another question. I mean, that, that's, a, that's, that, that's sort of a separate, sort of, sort of a separate issue. Um, um, the, okay, so then we find, uh, for example, uh, at Tel Dan in northern Israel, uh, uh, a, um, a fairly early inscription. Notes talks about the house of David, and so people say, "Oh, wow, yeah." Now, now we, you know, maybe we there was a house of David, and until that inscription was found, uh, skeptics, sometimes called minimalists, said, "Oh, no, there's no reference to David, so no reference to David." Um, you know, it's just sort of a, a glorification of, of later times. Now we've got the house of David. It must be. Um, I actually think that if you, if you, if you Except in some general way, at least, the biblical account of David, finding that inscription in Don is, is, is basically beside the point. And if you don't, I think it's beside the point, too. Um, but the, um, and then when we get down to a later period where one of the northern Israelite kings, Omri, has actually found uh, a, a picture of him, is found on an inscription. He's offering um, uh, tribute to uh, an Assyrian king, which the biblical text essentially says that's what he did, and that's a certain kind of confirmation. And and so it, it goes all kinds of ways. And again, so I find myself when I'm sort of drawing to the conclusion of of, of responding to your questions, because they are really good questions. Two things. One is that um, the, uh, the truth of, of the Bible, which is God in his, in his interaction with humans, is neither provable nor disprovable from the biblical text. And, alas, if we want to go to not that, but we want to go instead to, okay, if we can't prove the existence of God, can we prove the existence of, uh, of this event? Oh, this um, uh, battle, uh, and just as you suggested, the 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 work of the archaeologist, um, which is both the scientific um, uncovering of material in, uh, in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way and recording the data in an appropriate way, and its interpretation, which by definition interpretation is more uh, subjective, uh, for the most part has complicated the matters, and not simplify them. In our show, we encounter parallelomania, uh, you know, where they say that Jesus was just like Osiris and um, Moses was just like someone else and Noah was just like Gilgamesh. Uh, is there a true connection between the writings of other communities, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Israelites, or were they just using common language that was popular at that time? Um. They are not sure that the. Um, I'm not sure that the either or there. Uh, that, that those two, either this or that, are. Um, that's really an either or matter. So the, um, because I mean this question is, uh, for example, uh, did the person or persons responsible for the account of the flood. In chapter six through nine of Genesis, uh, have in mind 
a uh, a story reflected in Gilgamesh and, and other uh, Mesopotamian documents. Uh, did the writer or writers of the first chapters of Genesis have in mind a document similar to the Enuma Elish? Uh, so that that seemed to be on one side. The other side was, uh, or did they simply have a more general? Um, or they simply have a more general sense of well, this is what people people. That's a story about the flood, and it just you you just would have sort of heard about it, whether you had ever read or specifically heard a, uh, the Gilgamesh and the, the story of creation, and you know, it, it, it was just in the air as you were something that people knew without having any specific um, knowledge of. Enuma Elish, and I, I, there I think uh, it's to me it's more it's more both and. Um, and what's important is that um, oh, oh, so let's say we posit on the part of the writers of the biblical text uh, a fairly sophisticated knowledge of Mesopotamian culture, and we posit on the part of the readers of the biblical text a more general, less sophisticated knowledge. Um, of Mesopotamian culture. Well, what's important, uh, as I see it, is that we accept that the the authors and the recipients of the um, of biblical texts, like creation accounts and the flood accounts, um, uh, did not live in a vacuum, and that yes, they knew the general views of those, whether at a sort of a technical higher level or at a more general uh, dispersed level. And that when they heard, when they, well, let's look now at the audience. And rather than, when they heard the story of creation um, and um, they would, they would recognize, well, you know, this is what I had heard, you know, talk to the marketplace or whatever at the, you know, at the tavern or something, people have been talking about creation. Yeah, there was, you know, there's this order of creation and this, this, and this. Um, but then, because of that shared element, it uh, brings out in greater relief the distinctive feature. And it's not simply, okay, uh, Mesopotamians believe there were lots of gods involved, and uh, Israelites were supposed to believe all the stories inculcated belief there's only one God it, because the difference between many gods and one God is not simply a mathematical matter. It's hugely, it, 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 it hugely defines uh, very different understandings of divine and, uh, and the human interaction with the divine and human responsibility. But the fact that um, the, um, the, the writers of the biblical text made use of material which would have been widely understood, at least in, in a general sense. And then, um, if we want to be sort of cynical about it, we'll say they put their own spin on it. Uh, however we want to look at it, uh, uh, the, they introduced into these, in, in, into these stories the one God of Israel, which then decisively... Um, reconfigured the entire story, even when the outline is the same. Uh, someone who doesn't, um, someone who doesn't believe that's, uh, oh, not believe, but somebody who doesn't think that's correct, and that thinks that somehow another, when you say that, you've diminished 
the power of Israelite Judean Jewish um, thought, I think is 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 very wrong. I mean, I think the the uh, tendency which at one time existed to say, oh yeah, uh, this is what the other people believed, this is what Israel believed. No contact. It's totally new. Um, the 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 archaeological. This is a good example. The archaeological evidence does not support that. But more importantly, um, I don't think the biblical text supports it. I, I don't think the, I don't think the biblical text um, uh, supports the view that um, each idea expressed in the Bible was totally unknown until. Uh, writer A, Prophet B, Wisdom Writer C, or whatever came up with it. No, in fact, uh, it makes better sense um, to to look at this as a shared inheritance or shared set of beliefs, which is uh, uniquely turned, sometimes in, totally flipped on its side or on its head uh, because of the belief in one God. Um, so yeah, I would I would say that either uh, either of the of the you know of the views that you had at the beginning of the question seem plausible. In fact, both of them seem plausible. And what doesn't seem plausible uh, is that um, the uh, that, that the Israelites had nothing in common with 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 their neighbors. Um, and again, and in and in terms of material culture, uh, archaeology, that, that is an instance where archaeology, uh, where I, here I mean in, um, the uncovering of text and the decipherment of text, in addition to um, urban archaeology and what have you, uh, shows that um, for the most part, if you um, happen to be um, traveling through Canaan in, I don't know, it's very hard to say, 1100 BCE. Um, and uh, you pass through an area that was primarily inhabited, inhabited primarily by uh, believers in the God of Israel. And then you pass through an area that was inhabited largely by believers in the Canaanite, the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, you You would not necessarily... Uh, have any easy indication which is which. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's the way I look at that. The most compelling theory of the writing of the Bible I heard was during my health and healing classes at Spurtis. Uh, one of the authors spoke about the Israelite captives of the Babylonian um, conquest, uh, them writing the Bible as they were looking back at their history and their experiences and wanting to develop a common narrative, a glorious past, to inspire hope for the oppressed masses. Uh, would you say this is a good version of what happened based on your research? I'll have to be very honest with you. I'm agnostic on this, by which I mean I don't have any particular. Um, I don't have any particular um, strong sense, or I don't have a particularly strong sense about um, these absolute chronological period in which 
any part of the biblical text was composed. I mean, I understand that's a that that that's a, a widely held view. Um, as it happens, uh, I'm working right now on the Jewish Publication Society commentary in the Book of Joshua, and I've just been reviewing a lot of the uh, critical historical critical um, approaches. So it's pretty clear. Essentially, just like this moment, just for the book of Joshua, but more broadly for the minor prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, that the, I would guess, the regnant, if you will, the uh, critical, um, historical critical view is that the, the material was brought together uh, during the Babylonian exile and functioning very much as you've, as you've said. Um, from that, um, we, could, we could go several different directions. So I, I don't find that to be uh, a... Um, uh, I don't find it to be a, a position without some value. Um, but from that, you, we could say, um, at the time of the Babylonian exile... Um, scholars, prophets, uh, priests, and others constructed a history of Israel um, that they felt would be useful in unifying the people. They didn't have any particular evidence from one view or another. They simply determined what seemed to be the best for them, and, and that's that. Um, which is not a view I'm very um, uh, would be very um, amenable to, or we could say, uh, which I, th I think was pretty much in the uh, in the as part of the premise in the question you were asking, that um, uh, at some time in the ba in the Babylonian exile, um, individuals took the traditions of Israel that had been passed down. Uh, orally and then in scribal form. Some, I think, uh, primarily orally. Some initially in scribal form. Um, material that came from different groups uh, representing their experiences as they reflected on them. And then material from other groups uh, uh, reflecting their understanding of the meaning of these experiences as they understood them and brought it together into a, uh, I can't say it's a unified whole because it's, it, it's not, a, it's not a, it, it's not, a, you know, totally unified, but into a, an, into an ideological, um, framework, um, that, uh, speaks primarily of, um, God and obedience to God and its consequences, disobedience to God and its consequences. Um, and that's, that's a view which I find to be okay. I mean, not, when I say okay, it's not a better one. It's, it seems perfectly um, compatible with the evidence. Then, of course, as you know, there are some who would say, it goes both ways, there are some who would say the book of Joshua was written by Joshua. Uh, it is from the time of Joshua. Then uh, you take out the end of the book of Joshua that talk, describes his death, 
just as you take out the end of the book of Deuteronomy that describes Moses' death, and a couple of other verses, and you say, Joshua wrote it. So that would be the earliest kind of chronology to explain the uh, book of Joshua. It, it strikes me as flat, and um, no matter what contribution I may think a uh, 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 historical Joshua had to the book, had toward the book of Joshua, it certainly uh, does not come uh, wholly or even largely from that time. This is without saying, however, that traditions couldn't come from that time. At the other end, there are people who um, hold that the entire Hebrew Bible is a, a result of the Hellenistic period. We're down to the third century. No part of the Bible, according to this view, is earlier than the, the Hellenistic period. And, in fact, taken to its extreme, some scholars hold that the Bible is no earlier than the earliest manuscript we have of the Bible. By this I mean the earliest, yeah, the earliest fragment we have. The earliest fragment we have of the Bible is uh, early 2nd century BCE. That's as old as the Bible is. Isn't that these are late fragments? That's the reason we don't have fragments before that is because they didn't exist. In this view, a little, if any, of the, certainly of the um, uh, material contained before the United Monarchy, and even a lot of that is without any value at all historically. Uh, there's no sense in which anything authentically uh, of the early period exists. It's a complete, I, I'm trying to find a word which is not uh, a judgmental, it's a complete fabrication, but the thumb, yes, it is a complete fabrication even if done under the best of circumstances and with the best of motives by people in the third century. I, I, I'm mystified, not, uh, or to say the least, that, that anybody would hold that to be seriously the case. But, you know, you've got, just let's say for the book of Joshua, you've got a period of about 1,200 years during which it could have been started, worked on, and completed. And the what you have, what you mentioned as what to you is the most compelling, and it is a compelling um, argument or compelling picture, is that um, you look to a particular uh, time period and um, see how the material functioned not only as a sort of a sort of a history lesson but as a lesson which would be most valuable to the contemporaries of the people who are putting the story together. And, and that's a compelling answer. So and another answer which finds a lot on the part of conservative scholars dates, for example, the, um, the majority or the center part of Joshua to the time of the United Kingdom. From, that's you know, the time of David and Solomon. And, of course, there's plenty of biblical evidence and many traditions that this was the first time there was a, a substantial scribal, um, a substantial scribal um, community who could have done this. Um, but, yes, so, again, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult, at least for me, to say, yes, you know, it is from that period, but it's also difficult for me to say, oh, no, that couldn't possibly be right.
So during my conversations with different scholars about the historical Jesus, we spoke about how it is difficult to decipher what parts of the New Testament are intended as um, factual or historical, uh, you know, parts of his life, and what is allegorical. Can an actual history of ancient Israel be written based on the Bible? Or since it's a theological document, is it hard to decipher what is meant to be instructional, historical, or homeoget like I guess to preach sermons about it or religious uh, indoctrination within it? Is it just an amalgam of different things and it's very hard to decipher what actually occurred? I guess you were talking about that in the previous answer, but um, what is the consensus? Um, well, the, the consensus runs all the way from, I mean, there isn't a consensus. I would say it runs all the way from the most quote unquote conservative scholars who hold that the, the biblical, that the, that the biblical, um, uh, text is itself an historical document, uh, as worthy of consideration as a historical document as the annals of the Assyrians and the, uh, King's list of the Egyptians and what have you, and that it, forms the basis for writing the history of Israel. That's at one end. Two, those who hold that the biblical account is uh, basically a, a very late construct um, that contains as close to zero of what we would call historical value as could possibly be the case. Um, those Again, those, those are the extremes. Um, the, uh, and I don't know that there is, actually, I don't know that there is a consensus and I don't know that we could, I don't even know how we would arrive at a consensus because we'd have to, in order to have a consensus, we'd have to have general agreement over what we think the biblical text is and how we think it can be utilized. Um, certainly if, if, if you were setting out to write a history of ancient Israel, uh, you would include the biblical text, you'd include all of the extra-biblical texts uh, that are at all relevant. You'd include all of the discoveries of, of the archaeologists that are at all relevant, no matter how difficult they are to pinpoint as to detail. And you would analyze the material uh, using any and all of the social science methods that uh, have proven uh, valuable today. I mean, again, one of the, one of the, um, I think it's a canard. I think it's a false, um, um, it's, it's a false argument as it's often carried on is, um, say, well, the, again, the biblical writers were not writing real history because they had really strong points of view and they expressed them. Whoa, excuse me. Modern historians have really strong views and they express them. I mean, it's, it's not that, that our history and their history are diametrically opposed. In my viewpoint, it's it's uh, it's more the fact that um, modern history, and here we're really talking about history, pretty much since uh, uh, the Greeks with Thucydides and Herodotus, looked toward causation, which is really what history is about. How did this relate to that? How did this? Uh, in what way is this a causative factor in that? And um, that sort of Western or Greek tradition of history uh, has the causation within the realm of human of humans, and and the biblical 
um, uh, the biblical writers, along with other writers of the ancient age, clearly understood that the causation was much more broad and that ultimately what mattered was the intervention of the one God or or, or the many gods. Um, and again, I, I pointed out that, you know, um, I'll just give another quick example. Um, it's generally understood that Abraham Lincoln was our most theological president. Abraham Lincoln said, and this was during a time period when theological language from the president uh, was much more acceptable, this type of theological language much more acceptable than it is today, but Theodore Roosevelt said that the Civil War was God's judgment on a sinful people. Theodore Roosevelt said, upon me, uh, Abraham Lincoln said, the Civil War is God's judgment on a sinful people. Well, is that true? Was the Civil War God's judgment on a sinful people? That's not a historical question as we understand it. It's a theological question. On the other hand, if we ask the question, did Abraham Lincoln say that the Civil War was divine judgment on a sinful people. And from all the evidence that he believed that, we consider that to be a historical question. So whether or not we're going to write a history of ancient Israel is partly what is it that we mean by history, and it, it's, it's partly the basis of presuppositions, which maybe shouldn't be called presuppositions if there were um, if, if there was all of people's having studied the text and finding as this value what doesn't have this it doesn't have this value so an, another way very quickly of looking at it is when we when, when there's a reference in the uh, in the biblical text to a particular king do we take that as an historically valid piece of information unless there's something that is uh, compelling the leads us not to do that? Or do we say, I'm going to accept this as a historical piece of information only if it's verified by, I don't know, an Assyrian text or an Egyptian text? Um, there's, you, 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 can't, you can't do both, and ultimately something like this. Uh, and whichever way you go with this uh, has a profound um, as a profound influence on whether you think a history of Israel can be written and what you think that history will contain. And uh, so the answer, again, <laughs> yes, a history of Israel can be written according to some, and no, it can according to others. One of the questions that our professor asked during the biblical archaeology class was, uh, is the Israelite religion the same as biblical religion? And I guess it has to do with what you're saying about um, if you were to compare um, the Canaanites with the Israelites, you know, at that time, if we had a time machine, they would be very similar. But what is portrayed in the Bible is a different picture. So uh, is that one of the things that kind of makes it difficult to uh, ascertain what, what really happened? Yes, and that actually goes two ways. Um, up until... Uh, the middle of the last century, the only information that we had about Canaanite religions was what the biblical text said about it. 
the writers of the Bible were not interested in a um, uh, in an impartial ethnographic study of religious practice among the Canaanites. They condemned it. Uh, a um, uh, they were no question. They were biased against Canaanite religion. If you wanted to know what Canaanite religion was really like, um, you'd have to take into account that up until that point, the only information we had was biased against it. After that time, there were discoveries at the um, uh, site um, that we call Ugarit in Syria, uh, which is a, um, a, a site which yielded texts uh, that are, roughly speaking, Canaanite. And then we found out, okay, from their own text, what was their religion? Um, so at that level, um, uh, the, the, the biblical text is not going to yield us a world histories or ancient Near Eastern history um, view because that's a, that's a very strong bias. On the other side, as it were, the biblical writers, uh, the prophets and others, uh, harped on, if you will use that term, uh, over and over again, must worship one God. You must worship one God. Now, do we judge from that that the people all worship one God? And this was something I, I remember early on in my graduate studies. Why would the prophets, and, and these are you know the texts of the prophets and others, continually talk about the need to worship one God if everybody was already worshiping one God? No, this was a, this was a problem. So the worship of the worship in ancient Israel was obviously not thoroughgoingly monotheistic, no matter when we think the term monotheism developed, because the people were always being called away from something other than the worship of the one God to the worship of the one God. Um, so um, I, w I would say that the, uh, the, the read creatively and, and contextually the biblical the biblical text gives us a really good sense of what was actually going on as opposed to what these people wanted to go on and in terms of their understanding of the Canaanite religion it it was clearly again um uh, the the last place that I would look to find out uh what Judaism is all about is of the track of the tracks of 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 a bunch of anti semites um, so yeah, um, but we can we can derive now a pretty good sense of what the Canaanites had going for them, and a pretty good sense of what was actually going on in Israel, and a pretty good sense of why large numbers, if not most of the Israelites at any given time, would much prefer to practice at least some some aspects of the Canaanite religion. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's again, it's it's it's. Um, to me, it's it's a matter of having the best text possible, and then reading them in the best context possible. Leading up to the idea of monotheism, um, some religious uh, people would find it troubling that the names used for God by other communities in that area are very similar or the same as for the Israelites. Uh, is there um, a way to look at that without making free association that they just borrowed um, from other deities and they made up their own God as they went? 
That's also a very interesting question because a lot of what I read, and, and this is not that, nobody, it's not that, this is not a particular interest of mine, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm reading about it. Uh, basically, has um, you know um, some kind of um, I don't know some some kind of inchoate, formless idea that some people who later on became known as Israel had about God, but they didn't really have any name for them. They didn't really have any mythic text for them. They didn't really have any sense of that deity. And then they came in contact with Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, or they came in contact with this group, or they came in contact with that group. And, oh, they had a god whose name was all of like Yahweh. And said, whoa, this is really good. Why don't we adopt all of this? Um... Uh, of course, I'm, um, I'm, um, I'm reducing this a lot. I'm not, you know, but ultimately, this is what people will argue, and I, I, I don't, um, I don't find it to be a very satisfying. Uh, I don't find it to be a very satisfying explanation. Um, that um, the term or words from the term Ael. Um, so we have Ael, Elohim, and others in, in Hebrew, um, that, that they share that terminology with other uh, ancient uh, Near Eastern Semitic speakers for whom that term also referred to a deity, but then a plurality of deities, uh, is, not, is not in the least bit I mean, to me, it's not in the least bit um, surprising. Um, the, I mean, the biblical writers recognize the term Elohim as a, a term. They recognize it as a term which describes divine beings, either Israel's, where it's singular. It's always in the plural form, Elohim. But they also use the word Elohim to describe gods, that is, uh, beings that are thought by the Babylonians or the Egyptians to be divine. And they use the same term for it. Uh, and using the same term has an advantage, and that is when you hear the term, you think divinity or deity, and it has a disadvantage. That is, if you hear the term and you think deities or divine beings, um, and um seems as if no matter where the idea of God came from, um, I wouldn't pretend to know, um, but the terminology uh, that was adopted was, I, I think, consciously adopted uh, on the basis of the language of neighboring people with the understanding that it carried with it some positive connotations and also carried with it some um, um, po some dangers. And, um, and and so so I yeah I I I, I guess I'm not sympathetic um, uh, to the view that um, uh, Israel's development of a belief in in the one God uh, was in any decisive way influenced by the beliefs of neighboring peoples. But I'm totally. Um, Happy with the idea that um, the 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 structure, the, the linguistic structure, uh, was consciously chosen because it um, paralleled that of other people, and 
that stories such as creation and flood uh, were um, the, the, um, the basic outline was chosen because the people would be familiar with it. And then the, the one God was introduced, which then made the, took the familiar and, and just completely turned it around. Okay, so you work for a Jesuit college, a Catholic institution. Uh, are Catholic or Protestant students open to being challenged about their understanding of the Bible? Or, or is that a, a challenge? In, in, in a very general sense, um, the views, views about the Bible, Roman Catholics and Jews are much closer than either of the other two are toward uh, Protestants. And so here are, uh, here's the basic, uh, the, the idea that the, the Bible is inerrant, you know, without error, and the idea that the Bible constitutes the, um, the entirety of God's revelation to humans. That's, that's Protestantism. Neither Jews nor Catholics have ever been literalists. Uh, so in Judaism, the first level, if you will, of, of reading the biblical text is, is, is called shot. It's not that it isn't the literal reading of the text. To me, it's the common sense reading of the text. It's the reading of the text when you first look at it. For um, Protestants, that's a literal reading. And for Jews and Catholics, it can be the little reading, but it's it, but but it's that's not what's important about it. It's you know this is the the sort of the unembellished text, the way in which Roman Catholics and Jews approach the Bible. I mean, clearly Roman Catholics are Christians and Jews are not, but the way in which we approach the Bible, which is not literal and which also understands a, a, a process of continuing revelation, decisively differs from Protestants for whom the the biblical text is, is meant to be taken literally and to be taken without error, and to contain the entirety of God's revelation, which creates its own difficulties, which fortunately I don't have to deal with on a, you know, on, on a personal level. Now, I'm just going to give you an example, again, from the Joshua commentary on which I'm working. In, cha- in chapter, 12, uh, chapter 10, probably in the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua makes a po- uh, has a poetic utterance in which he says something like, Sun stand still, moon stop, and then, as a result of that, it appears that the day is lengthened, so that the um, Israelites are able to defeat their enemy. Okay, this is a pretty famous passage within Judaism and within Catholicism. The Joshua's utterance is understood as poetic. Now, being poetic obviously doesn't mean it's not true. Or it's not a matter of truth or falsity, but it's an understanding that poetic language, almost by definition, is not to be taken literally. It, it has carries so much, so many different valences and meanings. For at least many Protestants, I'm not going to you know, go across the, say, 100%, if the text says, Joshua said, sun, stand still, then the sun must have been moving, and Joshua told it to stand still. There's no sense of poetic imagery involved. So what does this mean? This means, and by the way, there are 
not many, I, would, I wouldn't say, I, I don't know how many, not by any means the vast majority of Protestants, but certainly some conservative Protestants who believe on the basis of this passage several things, one of which is that the, uh, that the solar system is geocentric. It says sun stands still. Well, if the sun's standing still and we're marching and, and we're going around it, which of course is what all reasonable people believe, then why would Joshua have told the sun to stand still? It was, it was never moving. So that text must mean that the sun revolves around the earth. Okay, I mean, what else could it mean? That's that's that that's a literal interpretation, uh, and and I would say a complete misinterpretation of the text. Moreover, if the um, uh, sun did stand still as we were rotating around the earth, <coughs> that would have added, <coughs> excuse me, X number of hours and minutes to time, because the day would have been longer than 24 hours, and through some what I would call pseudoscientific way, we should be able to find that. And indeed, pseudoscientists, I can't call them anything better, probably call them something worse, among Protestants will demonstrate, admittedly on the basis of pseudoscience, that that was a time in which a day took uh, 23 hours and some, uh, took 23 more hours than the normal day. Okay, so when it gets to being, when it gets to the kind of discussion um, we're going to have uh, as a as a beginning point, uh, Jews and Roman Catholics are approaching the biblical text in a, in a quite a similar way, and that makes it easier to have the discussion. On the other hand. Uh, Roman Catholics and Jews don't know the Bible as well as Protestants do. Even if the Protestants are learning, you know, uh, passage after passage by rote memory, their knowledge of the Bible is greater uh, on the whole than uh, for Jews or um, Roman Catholics. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. And you either uh, accept it and work with it, or it will drive you crazy. Speaking of... Um collaborating with um, or teaching non-Jews about the Bible from your background. Um, tell us a little bit about um, your venture with the Mormon community. Um, we will be speaking to Trevin Hatch uh, next show about uh, that collaboration, but can you tell us from your perspective how is that coming along and, and what's the purpose of that? It's a very interesting um, project, actually, through which um, uh, Trevin Hatch, who is a, uh, a Mormon who has his uh, uh, a PhD uh, and is also getting an uh, advanced degree from Spiritus and uh, now works as a librarian at Brigham Young, wants to... Um, wants to teach... More, this is the, actually, I guess the only way you can actually, I mean, the way to say it, to teach Mormons to be better Mormons by exposing them to um, the way in which Jews have dealt with uh, particular uh, practices and issues. Um, it, 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 it reflects uh, a fairly elevated view of Judaism in the sense that. Um, we as Jews have something to teach, 
and 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 that what we're talking about in the subject matter is is not um, uh, you know what we're talking about is ourselves. Moses, the 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 Jewish scholars who are writing are not in, it's not intended that they do research into uh, Mormon doctrine teaching or history and say, oh yeah, here's some connections we have. No, the connections will be drawn by Mormon scholars. Um, by the way, I have a, another friend who is doing, a, who has completed now a parallel project for Christians. And uh, in this case, he has written the entire book himself. And the premise of it is that Christians can learn from Jews how to be better Christians. These are, yeah, these, so that, I mean, these are two entirely independent projects done by two very, you know, different scholars for two rather different communities. But the premise in both cases is that um, you can learn to be a better Mormon or Christian uh, by, by um Learning more about Judaism. Oh, by the way, I have to be uh, I have to be careful there because um, I said Mormon or Christian, and of course, as I understand it, large numbers. I think most Mormons consider themselves Christian, and perhaps most Christians don't consider Mormons Christian. I'm not, so I don't really want to get involved in that. Um, but yeah, uh, and now that I think about it, if we want sort of a uh, um, a biblical um, basis for this. So it would be uh, Israel or here Judaism as a light into the nations. Um, and um, at, at the same time that I think it's uh, these are very positive features, uh, it should not lead anybody in any religion to think that um, Jews as individuals and Jews as members of a um, religious and cultural communities are without their own problems. So I'm now I'm wondering whether someone would write a book about how Jews can learn to be better Jews by studying Mormons. Um, I, don't, I don't know if there's any, I, I don't, I'm not saying that I would do that, but I'm just sort of thinking about it. Yeah. So these are, um, yeah, these are um, pretty, you know, there's a, a New. These are sort of new approaches because they're not they're not Jewish Muslim or um, pardon me Jewish Mormon or Jewish Christian dialogue. They're not really they're dialogues of a of a sort, but they are are uh, not efforts whereby Jews will become more knowledgeable about Mormons or Jews will become more knowledgeable about uh, Christians. But again. Um, Taking Judaism as uh, and uh, taking Jews and Judaism as exemplars of not just oh how can we become better Jews, which would be for a Jewish audience, but how we become better uh, Mormons and or better Christians. So that yeah, that's going to be something quite fascinating to see how it develops. I guess now I'm going to bring up some controversial subjects and and let me know how you feel about answering these questions. Um, so critics of the state of Israel are concerned that Arab and Muslim archaeological sites are being undermined in the process of claiming 
a Jewish connection to the land of, of Israel or Palestine. Or, um, is this uh, true from what you have seen? Is there any concerns? Uh, you know, in the news they talk about how Bethlehem and other sites are being claimed by Palestinian authorities, so there can be a, a greater acceptance of them as a nation. Um, you know, a lot of um, you know, Israeli uh, anti-Zionists and, and people like that would say that the the land is being Judaized and they're finding Jewish stuff everywhere or putting Jewish, Jewish stuff everywhere to kind of uh, dismiss uh, a Palestinian claim. Uh, is is there any basis for that from what you've seen? Is there concerns about stuff being uh, dismissed because they're not the ma majority population within the state of Israel? Yes, nothing like getting to some real controversy. Um, so um, I will admit uh, or acknowledge, I guess, straight out that I am um, have no particular uh, expertise in this area and that to the extent that I'm familiar with the issue, it would seem to be moving moving in the other direction, which is to say that um, a um, Apparently, Muslim leaders of some authority, that is, who are held in esteem by their followers, uh, hold, uh, argue that uh, there's no connection between Jews and the uh, uh, sacred mountain, Jerusalem. Um, and um, to me, that's that's a... a, a that that's a fact that people have said that. Now again, I, I'm, I'm I haven't done my own I'm done independent research, um, and then the, the the to turn the question around, um, I'm I'm pretty much of a if you will a captive of 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 the types of material that I read, and uh, therefore when um, when I read just bits and swatches, I guess you would say, of information about uh, the Judaization you know, on the on the ground, um, in terms of um, discounting uh, Muslim connections, um, in terms of of holy sites i don't know very much about it and in terms of the um of the settlements that's that i think is a somewhat different issue um because it's it it's not really it's, they're not making competing historical claims um but the in a and again in a, in a sort of a general sense there's there's no question uh that uh Archaeology is not uh, itself uh, exempt from providing um, the basis for making one sort of claim or another, uh, but we really shouldn't be too surprised about that because um, archaeology has almost never been a, um, a sort of a disinterested quote-unquote science. Um, and so that um, the the 
the archaeologists who were um, from major academies in uh, Paris or London or Berlin and were digging, uh, were digging at least in part as representatives of those, not only those academies in those capital cities, but, but those nations in their own interests and their own um, sense of how they fit in. Uh, so I really don't, yeah, I, I'm, I, this is a case where I don't know, uh, I don't have a lot of experience in the specifics of the question, and the experience I have uh, leads me in the other direction, um, but that as a result of which um, I, I'm going to be more sensitive, you know, to listening to the kinds of um, uh, the kinds of, of, of rhetoric on both sides, because um, again, uh, what I read, and because I, I read um, daily, at least one and sometimes more than one uh, Israeli newspaper, uh, is that uh, the Israeli government bends, bends over backwards to be respectful of, uh, you know, claims whether they be Christian claims or, or uh, Muslim claims to particular areas. Um, you know, and it's it's easy, I guess, if you want to, on the one hand, to believe it, and it's also easy uh, to be uh, suspicious that it's exactly, you know, that clean an operation as well. So you wrote an article about biblical psychology, and I took a biblical psychology class, and it was different. It was taking ideas from the Bible to help psychoanalyze people as compared to psychoanalyzing biblical characters. But regarding psychology, um, you know, there's a lot of, within the atheist movement, there's a lot of um, kind of ridiculizing and um, kind of dismissing any type of uh, religious perspective, especially the one that um, the biblical characters experience as delusions as them being um, you know, mentally ill and seeing things or talking to different beings and stuff like that and none of it being uh, fully, you know, like completely dismissing it all as natural for natural reasons, whatever. So um, within, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, study um, religious beliefs from an archaeological or scientific perspective or, or social sciences, but is there any evidence of that? Is there any story in the Bible that sounds really kooky to you that uh, it could have been some type of altered state that was not, that can be naturally described or are all within the context of their time and within the context of their message that even if you looked at it from different ways, there's nothing that seems so strange that, you know, they must have been crazy to have come up with that apparition or that theophany. Another a really good question, which I don't necessarily have, I don't necessarily know has a, uh, an either or answer. I mean, certainly, uh, okay, so, wait, so you've got the story of um, of Saul, and it says, you know, um, uh, Saul did something which was just unacceptable to God. At least that was the that's what the message was through Samuel. And um, uh, evil spirits uh, ent ent entered into, uh, you know, Saul was 
I don't want to say bedeviled by evil spirits, because that's a, a, another term there. And then David comes along, he's able to soothe them. What are these evil spirits? Oh, maybe they're like um, uh, feelings of uh, uh, inadequacy. Or God, I mean, uh, can we find a, uh, a, 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 a psychological term in today's parlance that would explain this, that, or the other? And the answer is sure. Um, I mean, sure, but then the, then the question is, what, have we done anything valuable? And I would say, no, we haven't. And the reason why I say that is um, that the, the only, one of the main points I made was the only way in which we can um, psychoanalyze a biblical character or any character from a previous time is by literally reading the record. I mean, there's nothing, you know, that there's, if, if you read the record other than literally, um, then, then you change the character. And yet Jews and Roman Catholics in the spaces and Muslims don't read the text. We don't necessarily read the text. Literally, we don't necessarily look at the text, oh, uh, evil sp- God sent evil spirits uh, to Saul. Um, we don't necessarily read that as, as a, as, oh, something, literally, God really did this. Oh, at least I certainly don't. I, 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 I read it as a uh, um, someone's record of uh, a a marked change within the biblical account of Saul uh, to what I guess what we say that they sort of entered the dark side. Um, this is this is and it's not that it's it, I mean it's not that we can't psychoanalyze uh, literary characters. Um, the question is if 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 we're going to do that, we have to recognize that we're reading the, the text in a flat way. Uh, because the um, and I've read any number of these studies, whether or not the psychologists or psychiatrists, many of whom are multiply and uh, admirably um, credentialed, you know they have degrees from major affiliations with major universities, um, they don't know. And looking at their bibliographies. And looking at what they wrote, they don't really care about biblical studies. They just take the text and read it as if it were a scientific, essentially a scientific, a cenographic report, and say, well, you know, this is the one that says ahead. Oh, now, what does that sound like to me? Oh, yeah, it sounds like this, this, and this. And yes, you're correct. The um, Almost across the board, whether these people are quote-unquote religious or not, and the articles I've looked at really don't relate to it one way or the other. Uh, Across the board, these biblical leaders are are suffering from delusional, uh, psychopathic, uh, so, I mean, they are sick people. Maybe you know that's true. Everybody's sick, but the, these people are egregiously sick people who've gotten positions of power, and they play out their sickness uh, in these power roles. Uh, and I think I think it's it's again I think it's it's um, not even I don't even think it's 
worthy as a thought experiment. I, I, I think it's unworthy in all respects. I think it's a, a travesty of, of biblical scholarship, and I, and I think it's um, a, a triviality or trivializing of the scientific record. So I don't have any, um, I, I, I have, I have um, really no sympathy for this, and that the people who are doing this, um, sh- frankly, should have better use of the time. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. I would like to thank our listeners for their interest in our show and their ongoing support. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email us at wutzfm883 at gmail.com.